1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24, and then 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you, know, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of him, that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we, we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love of God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you're a visitor here this morning, we want to welcome you. We're pleased that you are with us, and we hope that you love the Word of God, and if you don't, that you will come to love the Word of God. 
And uh, we're going to spend some time in it this morning as we look together at uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you would, open your Bibles, Revelation, chapter 2. When you hear the church talk about love, it makes one of two mistakes, typically. On one side, you have those that say the love of Christ is to love doctrine. Doctrine is the meaning of the word. You can have numerous verses memorized, and if you don't know the meaning of those verses, it's rather meaningless. But you love doctrine so much that you can fail to love the brethren in accordance to the doctrine that you know so well. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a sappy sentimentalism that most of the church in America falls prey to today. They're not very concerned about doctrine. They're not very concerned about expositional preaching that takes more than 25 or 30 minutes. But they're all about love. Hugging, holding hands, singing songs. That's what they think about love, and that's the extent of their love, and it's like, don't bother me with doctrine. To stand on either side is a mistake. The text before us shows us the importance of doctrine. It is vital. While we love one another in the doctrine that we know so well. Amen? The title of the message is The Loveless Lover of Truth. We begin by reading in verse 1, chapter 2. This is the word of God that reads, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those that are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently in bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning to grant us understanding of this glorious text. Holy Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Because of his conquering work on the cross, because he came and upheld the law, he upheld the standard, he upheld the perfect standard of your holiness your demands, your commands. And then 
freely laid his life down in the place of many, raising the third day and ascending back to your right hand, seated on a throne, high and lifted up. We're here because of him, and we're here for him. We ask now that for your glory, through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, that I'd be anointed to declare your truth to your people and that your people would be edified in that truth, that you would grant us the repentance that we need and where it's needed, insight where it might be desperately needed, and new life to anyone who is dead in trespasses and sins who's not saved this morning. You would bring conviction upon their soul that they would see their desperate need for the Savior, the one who's the only way and the only truth and the only life and the only access to heaven, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are in the early studies of the book of Revelation. And we enter this morning into what is traditionally known as the seven individual letters of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Seven historic churches. Literal churches in Asia Minor. And as we read the seven accounts, we might ask ourselves, is he talking about them in the first century? Is he talking about us? Answer, yes. Since each instruction ends with this, he who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the Spirit, what the Spirit says rather to the churches, means it's for them and it's for us. Any every gathering of Christ's people from them to us. The church today, as you will see over the week, faces all the same issues addressed to these seven. So we stand in exactly the same relationship to the message of the book of Revelation as did this group of believers in Asia Minor. The characteristics described here for us remind us of the modern church. In it we see lukewarmness, indifference towards Christ. We see misplaced love. We see the likes of a slick program-oriented church bursting at the seams with people but are doctrinally impotent. We see the infection of pluralism. All roads lead to heaven, which is a damning heresy, by the way. Sexual sin within the church. Another church has pushed Christ out of fellowship so far that they don't even realize it. Imagine that. Every church needs to hear every one of these seven messages. Jesus addresses his church with the word oida. I know. I know your struggles. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. So this is a summons to hear what his examination includes. What's it made up of? And then there's a promise to those who conquer. There's a promise to those who persevere to the end. Five of the seven churches begin with praise followed by reproof. Two of them, two of the seven that is, receive only praise without rebuke. 
So this is a timeless catalog of all churches of all time, and the setting today is the church in Ephesus. The church of Ephesus. Ephesus was the most easily accessed city in Asia Minor, both by land and by sea. By the end of the first century, it was busy. It was thriving, a great metropolis of its day. It was the most prominent city in Asia Minor. So a trip to ancient Ephesus was like traveling today to New York City or Los Angeles. Certainly not as large, but just as influential. It was a great draw. And because of of location, the religious, political, and commercial developments of the day prospered greatly in the city of Ephesus. It was located on the Castor River, just three miles from the Aegean Sea. Merchandise would be shipped across the Mediterranean, up to the Castor River, right into Ephesus, and would be distributed as four major highways intersected also in Ephesus. So it would bring businessmen and merchants in mass. It was culturally advanced. They had all the amenities of any cosmopolitan city of the day. In other words, Ephesus was no hick town. They had sports, they had drama, they had the arts, plenty of pomp and pageantry in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was also referred to as a free city. Because of their loyalty to the Roman Empire, the city was allowed to govern itself. So, there was no Roman garrison present in the city of Ephesus. It was a free-thinking city, if you will. Independent of Roman domination and influence, which was very rare in that day. It was also the center of pagan worship. The Temple of Diana was there, a massive structure as large as two football fields. Be like fries. (laughs) I was in that place the other day. You get lost in there. Pagan pagan worship flourished on the inside of that temple. They were given to sensuality and sexuality. And it was there in the midst of this godless city that God planted a thriving church. There's much that is known about Ephesus if you simply read through the book of Acts. Acts. Paul first visited Ephesus in chapter 18, verses 19 to 21, and he, it says there he entered into the synagogues and he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures regarding Christ. Chapter 19, verse 10 tells us that Paul would later return and spend two years there in Ephesus, ministering to the saints and building up what is known as elders, leaders of the church, to shepherd the flock of God in Christ. He taught publicly in the hall of Tyrannus so that all who lived in Asia, the scripture says, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He was performing miracles, wonders, the apostle Paul, that is, known as signs of an apostle. Signs that pointed something greater, the fact that they had a place of authority granted to them by Christ as an apostle of the church. The Spirit was working through Paul in such a way that even handkerchiefs that touched his skin were passed on to the sickly and they were healed. Touching the the lives of those who were demon-possessed and the, the demons fled. It was in Ephesus, as you recall, the seven imposter sons of Sceva, the Jewish exorcists. 
were humiliated when they stood there in chapter 19, verse 13, and they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, and this is what they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, come out. And in response, the evil spirit speaks through the demon-possessed man and says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the demon-possessed man pounces on them, leaps on them, the scripture said, overpowered them, and they ran out of the house naked and wounded. Don't profess in the name of Jesus when you're not in Jesus. Very dangerous. And then this became known to all the rest as residents in Ephesus, chapter 19 tells us, where the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily powerful ministry. You see, Paul met modern-day paganism head-on without apology and without compromise. There was no tender message for the seekers in Ephesus. The Bible tells us no man seeks after God. Romans 3. Ten years later, Paul wrote this beloved body of believers in Ephesus through the letter known As Ephesians in your Bible, he said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will. In chapter 4, because of all the glorious truth of salvation being in God alone through Christ alone for the believer. He said, therefore, because of all that truth, I, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He concludes that glorious letter in chapter 6, verse 24, with these words. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Love incorruptible, unspoiled. Those words would come back to haunt them years later by way of the revelation of Jesus Christ when he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love of you had at first. Now let's look at the Lord's examination of the church of Ephesus. Beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The spokesman, none other than Jesus Christ, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks among his church. It's the Lord here who's dictating. It's the Lord who's dispatching this letter to be sent out to these seven. And he communicates the letter to the angel of the church. And the word angel, as you know, means messenger and refers to one whose primary responsibility it is here to carry out this message to the Ephesian congregation. Now, as you know, John has already interpreted the identity of the seven stars in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, if you've been with us. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This may refer, these angels may refer to human messengers, 
may refer to an angel, as angels are prominent throughout the book of Revelation. But I believe it most likely to be the pastors of these local assemblies, to be instructed and then to pass on the instruction. But either way, the point is that the Lord is present among his people. He's personally present and he's genuinely involved in his church, beloved. Make no mistake about it. He's here now, observing. And we're here to glorify him. We're here to praise him. We're here to sing songs about him. We're here, we're here to look back to the cross. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. We're not here to sing about fluff. We're not here to sing about me, and we're not here to sing about you. We're here to exalt Christ. He's present among his people. He always has been. He always will be. If you remember, he spoke to the old covenant people of Israel in Leviticus 26, 12, and he said this, I walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So by walking among his people, he not only holds us and sustains us, but also observes us and judges us. He exercises sovereignty over his church because he is the sovereign. Of all things, he is, notice, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. It's Jesus Christ who exercises direct control over these seven shining celestial bodies. Holds them in his right hand, which is the place of strictest accountability. It's the place of strongest protection. No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said, John chapter 10. No one, if you're his. So these messengers are surrounded and encompassed by the care of the groom himself, Jesus Christ. And as such, they're directly accountable to and completely controlled by him at the same time. He alone chose them. He alone uses them as it pleases him. You know, every spiritual leader, be they a pastor, an elder, a missionary, a husband, a father, is likewise accountable. Men, do you know that? You are accountable to lead and teach your family, your wife, your children, the word of God? Did you know that? Even though the immediate context here, I believe, is pastors, we all hold that responsibility, man. So as such, they're directly accountable to the groom, to the head, Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord's purpose here is to inspect his church. Inspection's underway because he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And as he does, he examines, he looks. The fiery eyes of Christ see through motives, see through intent to the heart. So here we see intimate involvement with each and every church. He sits in the front row when I preach, beloved. He's right there. Marking everything I say. He walks among the classrooms where the kids are being taught. He sits in the elders' meetings once a month. He sits at your fellowship table out in the fellowship hall. He sits in your car as you drive home and talk about the church. He's constantly taking stock of his church, auditing, inspecting, weighing, evaluating, and observing the spiritual condition of his church, the heart of his church. 
the heart of his people. And he proceeds now to give the results of this open examination. How do you stand today? Well, he begins here with commendation. He begins with praise for this church in Ephesus. Notice verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Notice their strengths. Toil, perseverance. I know your works, your toil, and patient endurance. Toil is a word that means to serve to the point of exhaustion. Rising early, staying up late for the purposes of Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed them. Consumed with ministry. And they did it with perseverance. They're ministering under pressure, beloved. They're ministering under stress. Perhaps you minister under stress because you have an unbelieving spouse. Perhaps you minister under pressure for a number of reasons. But they were motivated. They were self-disciplined. They were teaching the word of God. They were reaching souls with the gospel. They were assisting one another in that work. They were doing the work of the ministry. There were no lazy, lethargic, freeloading members who just roll in the back door and roll out. Wasn't happening in Ephesus. They were engaged. This is a church that demonstrated the faith that they professed with their mouth. Faith without works, James said, is dead. Dead. Ephesus wasn't sitting still. This church was based upon the gospel and they stood upon gospel truth. They never wavered. You know, many churches die because of, of sloth, lethargy. They're not fighting to maintain a ministerial standard. They might be holding events. You know, they have game night, talent night. We got screens, let's have movie night. But they don't have the moral fiber and the persistence to maintain ministerial integrity. Ephesus was toiling. Ephesians 4.12, they were equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and they were enduring it with perseverance. They were persistent. See, God has gifted the church with pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry in order that we're no longer swayed to and fro by what? Every wind of doctrine. So that any doctrine that rolls into town, a bunch of ignorant Christians just hop on the bad wagon. And then that fades away and they wait for the next thing to come hopping into popular evangelical circles of America. And they're duped every time. Notice what he commends here. He calls attention to their orthodoxy. To right beliefs. Proper worship. Notice, he points out their doctrinal discernment and, beloved, their doctrinal discrimination. Well, we shouldn't discriminate in the church. You better you better. How do you discern who's a false teacher? Notice what he said. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles, teachers. 
and you found them to be false. This, beloved, is a valiant church that cared deeply for the truth. They fought for it and they defended it all along the way. <laughs> Lovers of truth. He's commending them for this. He's holding them up. Commendation. So, in other words, this church was well-grounded in sound doctrine. They were theologically discriminating. This group would not endure evil men. They had a certain level of holy zeal, no gray areas of compromise. This church was no spiritual country club. We don't want to offend anybody. They stood for the truth. God's truth. Doctrinal error would not be tolerated in the church of Ephesus. When they heard theological error... Alarms went off. And they had no fear at all of calling a spade a spade. Heretic. False doctrine. We live in a day of theological compromise. Seminaries are going south. Many people bear the name church, but they're not ready and willing to accommodate this. They want to accommodate everything but this for the sake of not wanting to offend. I mean, how many congregations actually, how many congregations today actually test what they hear or even care what they hear, just so long as they feel good? Make me laugh. Don't preach more than 25 minutes, okay? I got to get to the beach. That's why I have my beach bag with me. Tell some stories. And if you don't make me laugh, at least make the hair stand up in the back of my neck. Tell me a cute story. Three poems, you know, three points and a nice poem to wrap things up, and I'll be on my way. Don't you dare preach at me or for me. For an hour. <laughs> True biblically sound churches, when they determine a teacher to be false, they show that teacher to be false. They defend the gospel from the reign of those who are most popular within the circles of the evangelical ignorant today. This is the reason I regularly make mention of the likes of people like the Joel Osteens of our day, the T.D. Jakes of our day, the Joyce Myers of our day. If you don't know what their doctrine is, you need to go look it up. It's damning. It's another gospel. So occasionally I name these because that's what this church did. For your protection. When you don't want to preach on hell, you refuse to preach on hell, you refuse to preach on sin, you're not teaching the whole counsel of God, and that's what pastors and preachers are called to do, to teach the whole counsel of God. Amen is right, brother. Thank you. We must vindicate and defend the gospel from erroneous teachers. That's why Jesus is commending them. Ephesus was unwavering in doctrinal accuracy, which enabled them to discern the false teachers. You have to know the truth to be able to defend the truth and know who a heretic is. So Jesus commends them here as a model for testing those who say they are and aren't. They're not. 
They're false. What did Jesus say himself in Matthew 7, 15? Beware, 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 beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing means they're hard to detect. We've chased heretics out of here and most of you don't even know it. And it was protect you from the error of their ways. And some of it wasn't pretty. But we have men in this church who recognize and who know. And we'll meet them at the door. But inwardly, Jesus said, they're ravenous wolves. Didn't linger long before praying upon the church of Jesus Christ after his ascension. Speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul said this to this very church. I know that after my departure, Paul, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples to them. It's nothing new. And it's not something that ceased in the first century. Now, once they received this warning, they remained on the alert. They watched for ravenous wolves. They watched for teachers of carnality, enemies of the truth, destroyers of the gospel, those who come in and sabotage the truth. And they didn't keep it secret. This is why you'll never see a sign out in front of Pacific Hope Church, as I've said before, everybody welcome. Everybody and anybody welcome to Pacific Hope? No, never. We don't invite and welcome heretics. Wolves in sheep clothing, they're not welcome. We don't invite and welcome snakes who come to pray P-R-E-Y on our ladies as they pretend to P-R-A-Y. We have a doctrinal gun that we point at them all. (laughs) And we don't hesitate to pull the trigger. Although they get the chance to repent first. This is what this church was doing. They were doing exactly what they were called to do. They'd been warned, they'd been instructed, and years later, they're still on alert. alert. They're, they're, They're commended by Jesus for this attentiveness. This discrimination, great discernment. You know, so many today are subverting the gospel. They're compromising and scorning doctrine. Pastors actually scorn doctrine. Oh, you people at Pacific Hope, all you care about is doctrine. That's right. We'll get to the love part in a bit. Some pastors of this emergent church movement actually encourage their congregants to read scripture with suspicion. Just ask our men who are here who just graduated from seminary. They know what's going on in seminaries. They come from a good one, but they know what's going on elsewhere. Ask them. We need more congregations that oppose and expose those that corrupt the truth. Churches that reject and eject those who confuse the people of Christ. Reject them. If they don't repent, eject them. The cost is too great to see men and women of Christ led astray from the gospel. In this day, you had traveling teachers who rolled in and out of town, itinerant preachers. 
Many were coming in claiming to be apostles. And I'll tell you what, the church of Ephesus put them to a sharp test before they ever stood at the pulpit of that church. So this church had enjoyed a long history of excellent Bible study founded by the Apostle Paul. Apollos taught there, a very polished and articulate preacher of the Word of God. He was discipled by Aquila in Acts 18.26 and his wonderful wife Priscilla. Later, this church in Ephesus was pastored by Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, As I urged you, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Go do a word study sometime, just through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral epistles, and look at how many times the word doctrine and attention to doctrine is commanded. How many? I don't remember. I didn't write it down. This was a true church, biblically sound. They had solid biblical watchdogs surrounding this place. And that's what we have here. And some people look at that as being prideful. No, that's being protective. This is very important. Because the church that stands for nothing, they will fall for anything. Anything. So the commendation is wonderful. This is, this is something we should aspire for. Lesser churches would have locked the doors. They would have folded under this pressure. Or at least, at the least, if they didn't fold, they would, they would compromise and accommodate any worldview because we don't want to offend. We want to minister to felt needs. So to do that, we're going to become like the world. So to reach the bikers of the community, let's, let's start dressing like bikers. You know, I'll get my chain wallet out and my ripped jeans and my big black boots and try to be cool. No. Christ is the one they need to know. We'll proclaim him. So this church is blessed by Christ for its perseverance, for its endurance. And this is in the context of spiritual warfare. And we, ought, we, we too ought to be found in toil, enduring, doing the work of the ministry by grace and for the glory of God. Not passively, but actively. They were proactive. It wasn't like a defensive line just doing this, you see. They were leading their running back. Knocking people out of the way, spiritually. Heretics. Those claiming to be apostles that weren't. Actively engaged. Notice he commends them for being steadfast and strong. Verse 3. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They were, dwell they were doing this while they, by dwelling in the hub of paganism. And they never wavered from the mission. They were steadfast. And they're commended. They didn't water down the message in order to have a more welcoming effect on anyone who may walk through the doors. They serve for his glory and not their own reputation, beloved. They serve to please Christ and not man. We're not here to please man. In case you haven't recognized by now, we're here to please Christ and to serve those that are his as we minister the word of God to your soul to be edified in the truth. Truth comes by hearing, hearing by 
the Word of God. See, a church that it's toiling is persevering, not bearing with those who are evil while continually testing those who are professed believers when they're not, that's a steadfast church. Immovable. They don't fear pointing out peddlers of another gospel. And they, this church in Ephesus, remain strict, sound, steadfast, and strong. Strong in the truth. We see another commendation from Jesus in verse 6. Notice, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said, I also hate. Well, Jesus doesn't hate. Oh, yes, he does. Now, these Nicolaitans were likely itinerant preachers as well who, who, who taught antinomianism. And it simply means no law. In other words, we can prostitute the grace of God, teaching that a Christian may live any way he pleases because, you know, grace just covers everything. Antinomianism. But whatever the heresy was, it was one that was accommodating error. They may also, these Nicolaitans, may have been blending worship to Caesar and Christ in unison. We're not going to talk much about him today. We'll get to him when he addresses the church of Pergamum because where Ephesus stood against the Nicolaitans, the church of Pergamum fell prey to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They failed the test. See, beloved, in Christ, if you truly love Christ, you will hate what he hates. And Jesus hates the perversion of his gospel. He hated it then and he hates it now. Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful shall not stand before his eyes, for God hates all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, His soul hates the wicked. What are you going to do with that? I didn't say it, he said it. He hates the deeds of these Nicolaitans. And I commend you, you hate those deeds as well. Sad to say, very few churches in our day could be commended as was Ephesus. So here then is a church that was striving. People plugged in. Ministry was flourishing. It was a booming church in the center of godlessness. They were a light in the midst of much darkness. Doctorally distinct and diligent. Any true pastor would love to shepherd this flock. And that's why I love Pacific Hope. You reflect this. You love the truth. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You hate heresy because Christ hates heresy. So it's easy to minister to you. Then Jesus now abruptly changes the tone of the letter. He moves from their strengths to their sin. He moves from praise to reproof. He moves from commendation to criticism. But. Now as I said a couple weeks ago, one of the greatest words in the Bible is but. But for the Christian. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. That's a good but. This is a bad but. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So, but here carries the weight of his transparent judgment of the very same group of people he just commended. 
that he just held up on a pedestal. So he addresses now a fatal flaw. He points out a deadly sin so serious that it'll actually endanger the very existence of this church assembly. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's heavy. One glaring deficiency in this church, which has the potential to ruin everything else, everything that he just built them up in could be torn down because of this one flaw. I mean, how is it possible for for such a strong, radiant group of believers to fall like this? Because you've abandoned the love you had at first. You left your first love. So, is this abandoned love for Christ, our Redeemer, the one who ransomed them? Or is this loss of love for one another? People struggle with this. I don't know why. This is very simple. They go hand in hand, beloved. You cannot have one without the other. Period. This is known as a tautology, saying the same thing over again in different words. You can't love Christ without loving his church. And you can't love the people of Christ unless you love the church, unless you've got some weird thing where you just need to be approved by people in a little circle of friends. You know, some claim to love doctrine. Now, well, I love Christ because I love doctrine. But in reality, they're always having run-ins with his people. And they come to a point where they can be resolved in thinking that they can love him minus his people. So they isolate themselves and they pout, they cry, childish. Or they remain indignant and angry. Others delude themselves into thinking they can love Christ's church when they don't generally love Christ, or genuinely rather love Christ. As a matter of fact, they detest doctrine. And the people who detest doctrine, they'll show up for bowling night, or the potlucks, they'll always show up to those. But don't be pointing doctrine out to me, okay, bud? Let's just have a commune and just love each other. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And he continues on. When you understand who Christ is, when you rightly understand what Christ has done, when you understand the cross that Jesus bore the shame and he took upon himself the undiluted wrath of God the Father, satisfying God's wrath and his hate for sin, when you understand the price that he paid, there's a fellowship and a bond that is birthed between those who share in that redemptive love. We join together and enjoy fellowship because of that. And as a product of that, him who first loved us, we love him in return, and we can't help but to love one another because of that initiated love. You didn't love God first. He loved you first. The only way you can love him is because he showed his love to you first. 
We cannot say we love God if we don't love the brethren. Now, a, a side note here. It's very important, especially in our day in America. This love, beloved, is not to be mistaken for sappy sentimentalism. You know, a kind of lo- a love that neglects doctrine, neglects accountability, it neglects reproof, it neglects church discipline. That's heat without light, as Jonathan Edwards said, in religious affections. Heat without light. May we be, though, light that produces heat. Amen? Some people are simply doctrinally lazy. They're indifferent towards accountability. And then they're the ones usually quick to accuse the church of being unloving. Because when their diluted view of love, when it's not met, that's what they'll do. You're unloving. Just care about doctrine. To some people, if you're not emotionally sappy with your head in some esoteric cloud somewhere, you're not loving. Esoteric means we're a group of people who we share in what the others don't have. We're more spiritual. We talk about the deep things of God. We're more relational. And these folks, they really don't get it, but we're special. They're just as deceived. Question, what happened? What happened to the church of Ephesus? George Eldon Ladd in his commentary on Revelation writes the following quote, the Ephesian converts had known such a love in their early years, but their struggle with false teachers and their hatred of heretical teaching had apparently engendered hard feelings and harsh attitudes toward one another to such an extent that it amounted to a forsaking of the supreme Christian virtue of love. Doctrinal purity and loyalty can never be substitutes for love, end quote. As those who herald the doctrines of grace, beloved, that's what we herald here, the doctrines of grace. That the salvific love of God is made manifest to sinners and is solely the work of God alone. It's not God saves us, but yet we play part in salvation. It is all him from beginning to end. The doctrines of grace, as we herald those truths, we should be marked by grace as we declare that truth. Never mistake authoritative preaching for unlovingness. Is that a word, unlovingness, Laura? (laughs) No, it's not. Never mind. For being unloving. Without love, our ability to successfully debate and conquer is pointless and empty. Debating over doctrine is good. It must be done in love. Without love, our hash marks of victory and our arguments against Arminians will be held against us in the end. Abandoning your first love is probably the closest danger to any one of us in this room. I hear these as a warning both personally and congregationally. Seriously. I will be judged, beloved. I will be judged as your pastor. I will be judged theologically. There is no doubt about it. That things are done correctly here. That they're done according to the truth of God in Christ, according to Scripture, rightly dividing doctrine. That's why I spend time with the elders getting into the text. When we teach through Revelation, I'm not jumping on a bandwagon that's been popular for the last 150 years. We want to divide it rightly. 
That's how important it is to us. But even so, that's not enough. We must be theologically orthodox while we are loving. Amen? Heralding biblical theology, in other words, a high view of God, theology proper, otherwise known as what you hear, Calvinism, that's all it is. It's not five points. Calvinism is having a high view of God. Just simply go read the Christian Institutes. Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin. You go, wow, he had a very high view of God. It's because he knew how low he was. Even so, one historian says this. He described the Calvinist tendency as, quote, a constant rage to explain. (laughs) Make no mistake about it, there's a lot of good in that when we explain correctly, amen? However, it must be done with constant, a constant yearning to love. Oftentimes, young men as they obtain knowledge of the scriptures and they start to retain doctrine, they become more of a migraine than they do a minister. <laughs> when they come to understand the doctrines of grace, you, as they say, throw them in a cage for six months until they mature a bit and they're able to go out and declare that truth with a little more love rather than wanting to lasso guys from pulpits who, who teach a very man-centered theology. John Newton said this, comes from the works of Newton. Though I am no enemy to the acquisition of useful knowledge, I've seen many instances of young men who have been much hurt by what they expected to reap advantage from. They have gone to the academy humble, peaceable, spiritual, and lively, but have come out self-wise, dogmatical, censorious, and full of a prudence founded upon the false maxims of the world. I do not mention this as the necessary fault of the institution but as the frequent effect of notions too hastily picked up when not sanctified by grace, nor balanced by a proportionable depth of spiritual experience, end quote. We have three men that just graduated from seminary, and they never fell into that category. As a matter of fact, when I went and visited their seminary, all I kept hearing was how humble these men were. Praise God for that. The tragic result of this is an abandoned love for Jesus Christ. Another form of abandoned love that people don't often talk about too much is to mistakenly think that worshipful love for Jesus, we're going to show how much we love him by running around the aisles, jumping up and down for Jesus. But make no mistake, charismatic methods don't necessarily reveal a true sense of love for Christ. Sometimes it can be for show, to draw attention to oneself. Anyway, it's easy to abandon our first love, try to make up for it in other ways. Now, this word abandon, it pictures a gradual, gradual release. To leave something behind over time. This departure for the church of Ephesus, it did not occur overnight. That's the point. Sometime over time, they lost their passion for Jesus alone, They had no longer demonstrated a love that was exemplified in years past when Paul preached from house to house in Acts chapter 20. 
Or when Paul wrote Timothy, who was the pastor in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Timothy, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. See, a new generation was rising up in Ephesus. They held to its strong tradition, no doubt, but not that intense love for Jesus, which should be the motivation for everything that we do. There's a fine line, beloved, of distinction between first love for Christ and a first love for doctrine. Yes, we should love doctrine, but it, become, it can become an idol. Not doctrine in and of itself, but knowledge of doctrine can become an idol. Whatever side you're on, theologically. This is where Pacific Hope, I believe, must be cautiously aware. Now, granted, you're a very loving church. I love you. Because of your love. That's all I've heard about all week, by the way, is how, how loving you are. We have a neighbor who donated a 52-inch plasma screen TV for our library. We can use it for lectures and things like that. So I go over to his house and we pick it up. And he says, man, I got to tell you, I love that you guys are in the neighborhood. He goes, there's not one person from your church I haven't met who hasn't been so kind and so loving. Amen, beloved. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Praise, praise the Lord for that. And I see that and I know that and I'm blessed by that. Nevertheless, we always must remain cautious. So there are many things to praise the church of Ephesus for. And we should prize all of these commendable qualities here, but nevertheless, we have to hold on to both love and doctrine firmly, both hands, amen? Both hands on the wheel, beloved. Drive this bad boy. Right? Dennis Johnson, wonderful scholar, said this, quote, Keeping a firm grip on both poles, truth and love, is a constant challenge for redeemed sinners who swing like pendulums from one extreme to another. Too often, churches and their leaders either stand for biblical truth vigorously but lovelessly, or else they preserve apparent unity and love at the expense of truth. End quote. I just want to love my sister. Well, that's fine, but she professes another Jesus. The Jesus she believes in isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Well, I think we all should just get along and fellowship and worship him together. No, you're not worshiping the same person. You get it? 2 John 9, mark it down, just go read it later. 2 John 9. Whoever doesn't believe the doctrine of Christ doesn't have the Father either. Notice the threat to the church of Ephesus. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Have you wavered from Christ? Have you left your first love? Repent. Do what you did at first. Or I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Meaning, beloved, that they will lose their light-bearing ability. The lamp will go out. The wick will flicker and die. Holding fast, yes, to active doctrinal strength and discernment, but no light will lumen from this church. That's the warning to Ephesus. 
The lampstand will be removed where the congregation will in turn die. That's the warning. Churches are dying all the time because of heresy. Oh, they might pack them in the parking lot, but they are dead. I've visited churches with my wife over the years. We walk out just grieved and terrified that, that lightning didn't strike the place. Terrified, not because it did, because it didn't. Heresy. Another gospel. So love for Christ turned cold. And love for Christ turned cold for any one of us is a forerunner to spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy leads to love for the world. Love for the world leads to compromise with evil and a compromise to truth leading to corruption, death, and judgment. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say you have no love. The emphasis here is placed upon the adjective first. You've abandoned your first love. So the love that's been abandoned is the love which was first expressed in the beginning from these believers for Christ. And then as a result of that first love, it was made manifest to one another. You've abandoned it over time. Slipped away. So simply... Their love isn't what it used to be as I close. They love the Lord, but not like they did as new converts. (laughs) They loved one another, but not like they did early on. So their early love for Christ and the one whom they profess corporately, together, that was the motivation for everything that they did. And it is waning now. Notice verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear. And then to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice Jesus calls them to repent. And if they do repent and they do return, they will conquer. In other words, they will overcome. At the end of each one of these seven letters, there is a, an encouragement. And it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And to the one who conquers, there's a promise attached. In every one of the seven letters. And the promise here is that they eat from the tree of life. And guess who eats from the tree of life? Only those that are truly saved. So in other words, those who conquer and those who persevere to the end and overcome don't gain salvation. It proves that they truly had salvation. That's why they will eat from the tree of life in paradise forever. It's the product of salvation. Those who run off apostate and they leave and forsake the name of Christ never were of the faith in the first place, regardless of how they felt in the process. This is just like Israel of the past. They've been wholly set apart to the Lord. And listen to what the Lord said to his people of Old Covenant Israel. Jeremiah 2.2. I remember, here's God speaking, I remember the devotion of your youth. I remember your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not yet sown. But he gets to verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? What does that represent? The honeymoon was over for Israel. The honeymoon was over for the church of Ephesus. And over the years, they'd grown cold. They left their first love as they moved away from Christ and fell back into the comforts of carnality. 
How about you this morning? Have you abandoned your first love? Have you left over time, gradually, your first love, Jesus? You see, in the anonymity of the crowd here, you know, we show up on Sunday, it's easy to say the right things. It's easy to go to a class when you know doctrine and cite scripture, give all the right answers, know all the lingo, know the Christianese. That's easy. But the more we move away, the emptier we feel, trust me. And there's a gnawing deep inside. And that's because of his love. The gnawing is because of his love. For whom he loves, he disciplines, he chastens. And before you know it, if we don't repent, we drift away from the Lord and we go back to the mire. So the instruction here is go back to him. Repent, do the first works. Perhaps you're not there, but you're just sensing that you're beginning to wane. You're beginning to move away. So how can we recapture and maintain first love? Christ. It's very simple, and I'll close with this. You must repent. Go back to him. Go back to him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you what? The desires of your heart. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he promises they will be filled. Those who are pure in heart, they shall see God. So we've got to go back to the source, beloved, individually to Christ, confess this sin, ask him, Lord, search my heart, show me, what have I set in place of you? What takes precedence over you in my life? Show me this week. Next time we will look at the detailed solution to the problem of abandoning your first love. Next week. We don't have, we don't have another hour today, do we? <laughs> Next week. So we're going to look at a detailed solution of how to recapture first love for Christ and then maintain it over time. So will I see you next week? Rejoice in the Lord always is the command. Again, I say rejoice. Now I trust that if you're not even in Christ this morning, you can't relate to this because you've never been drawn in by the salvific love of Christ. And if you're here today and the Holy Spirit's ministering to your heart in a way that you realize you're a lost sinner and you desperately need to be saved, here's what Jesus said. He never said, repeat this prayer after me. He never said, be encouraged. Jesus has a plan for your life. This is what he said to the unsaved. Repent. Which means to have a change of mind. Which means to have a change of heart. To have a change of life. To turn around away from yourself and away from idols and turn and embrace Jesus Christ, the only one that can save you. Repent, he said, and believe in the gospel, the good news, and you shall be saved. Not believe about. Believe into. Full surrender to the Lordship of the one who's king, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time and I thank you for your dear 
dear flock of Pacific Hope. Thank you for the testimony, Lord, of the love of this church. Thank you for the testimony, Lord, that was given by our neighbor, the testimony given by one of our own who was in the hospital and was overwhelmed by the love of the church. I I thank you for those who minister to one another. I thank you for those who encourage one another, who point one another in love back to the truth, who love one another enough to discipline one another in the truth. Um, Lord, I pray for any and all of us. Lord, we will all go through seasons of life where we will begin to move away from our first love as other things in this life take precedence over that deep, rich relationship that we have with you. Pray that you'll guard us from ourselves. I pray that you will grant us the grace to keep our eyes affixed on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the Omega, the first and the last. Dear God, we thank you for your salvation. Bless your people. Bless them richly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.